in liberating strife. The oath of office for an officer in the military is significant because we are actually pledging our faith and our obedience to a concept. We are not pledging our, our faith and obedience to a person, not to an office, uh, but to really a concept. And that concept is enshrined in the United States Constitution, which talks about all men being created equal and that the law is higher than man. And really this was an experiment, uh, an experiment that's lasted over 200 years at this point. And this experiment has consistently widened uh, the view of equal rights. Uh, so at first it talked to rights of men that were white and that were property owners. It was further expanded uh, to all men and now it's been expanded to all women. And it's even been expanded to uh, people of different sexual orientation. Ultimately, what this means is that we are beholden to the laws that the people of the United States ultimately create. And they create it by electing officials, and those officials uh, then create the laws that we follow. So it's quite critical for us to understand that we garner our authority not from any person, one person, not from any one office, uh, but we garner our authority from the laws that govern the United States and the ultimate law, which is the Constitution. And that puts law and Constitution over individual men and women. I'm talking about America, sweet America. You know, God done shed his grace on thee. He, he, he crowned our good. Yes, he did. Heavy brotherhood from sea to shining sea. We begin with a story. The year is 1957, and the Deep South struggles to embrace and enforce the court's ruling in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education. The Supreme Court's 1954 decision that rules state laws establishing racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional. After seeing Southern states drag their feet in enforcing this landmark ruling, the Supreme Court demanded integration to occur with all deliberate speed. In the summer of 1957, the school board of Little Rock, Arkansas, voted to desegregate their high schools. But Orville Fompas, the governor of Arkansas and an outspoken segregationist, ordered Arkansas's State National Guard to surround the high school and prevent aspiring black students from attending or even entering Little Rock High School. Fompas's order was followed by a draconian effect. From September 4, 1957 to September 23, 1957, the Arkansas State National Guard, accompanied by a belligerent crowd of protesters and rioters, physically barred entry to nine black students, eventually known as the Little Rock Nine. On September 23rd, President Eisenhower issued an executive order placing the Arkansas State National Guard under federal authority, in which the United States Army sent over 1,000 troops from the 101st Airborne to Little Rock. On September 25, 1957, the 101st Airborne stymied the belligerent mobs, enforced the Supreme Court's ruling on integration, and provided protection for the Little Rock Nine for the remainder of the school year, including patrolling the hallways. The Little Rock Nine, rightfully so, are considered American heroes. 
But President Eisenhower's decision to federalize the Guard and send the 101st Airborne was not without controversy. Questions like states' rights and the power of the central government and the concept of federalism all came to fore. To be blunt, President Eisenhower was not a natural civil rights activist. However, in the midst of the Cold War and an ever-watchful foe in the Soviet Union, President Eisenhower felt compelled to demonstrate federal strength and solidarity. The first portion of today's episode revolves around Amendments 9 and 10, as we seek to understand enumerated rights and the relationship between states' rights and federalism. In the second part of today's lesson, we focus on the 14th Amendment, what it means, its effect on civil rights, and the impact it had on the original Bill of Rights and its first 10 amendments. I'm your host and narrator, Michael Sears, and I'm joined by a team of historians, judge advocates, and legal scholars. This episode, as our introductory story indicated, focuses on the 9th, 10th, and 14th Amendments. We will learn about the history behind the Ninth Amendment and the differences between enumerated and unenumerated rights. We will then turn to the Tenth Amendment and a discussion between states' rights and federalism and that perpetually delicate balance. And lastly, we will hear about the Fourteenth Amendment and its impact on civil rights and the first Ten Amendments. Let our theme be clear. While the letter of the law and your rights guaranteed from the Bill of Rights represent the greatest portion of our country's principles, its denial to so many citizens for so many years highlights our country's failures. Our Constitution and our way of life remain a great experiment, and it is our responsibility as citizens and naval officers, and as Americans, to understand exactly what the Constitution guarantees to all citizens, and to prove that we truly are all created equal. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Ninth Amendment. To understand the Ninth Amendment, we turn to Professor David Luban and Professor Mary DeCritico. Professor Luban, what is the purpose of the Ninth Amendment and what did the founders attempt to achieve with its inclusion? You know, it's uh, it's a little bit of a cipher. And in fact, uh, years ago, uh, during one of the, the uh, very famous confirmation hearing of uh, Judge Bork to the Supreme Court, which he, you know, he did not get on the Supreme Court, he was asked about what the Ninth Amendment means. And he said it was kind of a Rorschach test. So what it says is that the enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights, and let's just stop at that phrase, that means the listing of the other rights in the Bill of Rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So it says just because we've got this list of rights doesn't mean that there aren't others that the people have that aren't on the list. And then the question is, what are those? And I think that there are some scholars who say, well, they're talking about natural rights. Um, and you know, there's some who say, well, they mean certain rights that aren't listed, like the right to privacy, which doesn't appear in the Constitution, um, or the right to travel from state to state, which isn't in the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't say that you have a right to have a family. Those might be, you know, I think with, that the way it could be used is to say that um, if there was a law that abridged that, then uh, uh, the fact that that's 
not ruled out by the Bill of Rights doesn't mean that it's constitutional. But it really is something in which uh, you kind of bring a lot of your own political philosophy into reading it. If you're a libertarian, you think that they're a very fat bundle of natural rights that are those unenumerated rights that aren't mentioned, but they're still there. If you have a different view, then it's only a handful of unenumerated rights that's still there. Or if you're like Judge Bork, you throw up your hands and say, it's just a Rorschach test. It is whatever you think it is. Professor Luban raises valid points about uncertainty regarding the Ninth Amendment. From history, we know that the Federalists initially opposed a Bill of Rights, not because they wanted to deny certain rights to citizens, but because they were worried the freedoms and rights articulated, or specifically enumerated in Amendments 1 through 8, would be too narrow and not encompassing enough. A compromise with the Anti-Federalists resulted in the Ninth Amendment, and the promise that specifically enumerated and existing rights neither determined the full scope of rights, nor disparaged or prevented other future rights. But how are we specifically to determine the difference between enumerated and unenumerated rights? This is Professor Mary DeCredico, Department of History at the U.S. Naval Academy. I think what they're getting at is that we are establishing these specific rights, but that anything that is not enumerated the state can decide. And this is going to, I'm, that's my interpretation. And this opens this whole can of worms of, okay, what rights does the state have? And also, what is the nature of this country? Is it a group of states? Uh, because in 1860, we said the United States are, which is proper grammar. Or if you're Lincoln, is it an indissoluble union? hence the United States is. And that's one of the key issues that the Civil War will establish. No, it's what rights are enumerated can go to the states, but at the end of the day, this is an indissoluble union. Professor DeCritico continues more specifically on enumerated rights, adding historical context. If it's not explicitly mentioned, it can be implied. This also gets to the whole notion of the elastic clause and necessary and proper. And that leads to another big debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And the Federalists say, well, you can interpret the Constitution and the Bill of Rights very broadly. Uh, again, you can't possibly write everything down and the Anti-Federalists are saying, no, 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 no. It has to be a strict interpretation. If it's not specifically stated in the Constitution, you can't do it. And that's going to get Jefferson, again, in a lot of trouble. Because when he buys Louisiana, there's nothing in the Constitution that says the president can buy territory. Nothing. Nothing about Congress. And because he does have constitutional scruples, Jefferson agonizes. Uh, I can't wait for joint declaration of Congress because Napoleon could change his mind. So he will buy Louisiana and argue that it's part of the Elastic Clause. He is broadly interpreting the Constitution while the Federalists have a fit. No, you can't do that. So we see the political flip-flop take place. And it's for purely political reasons. The Federalists are scared to death that the West is going to be settled by these independent yeoman farmers that will guard against the rise of urban areas. 
Um, and this is where you get all kinds of debates about presidential power. If it's not in the Constitution, how do you do it? it it's going to rear its head again when Texas revolts. Does the president have the right to annex Texas? And Northerners are going to say no, because Texas is below that magical 3630 line established by the Missouri Compromise that says no slavery above that line, but slavery can exist below that line. And Texas is huge. So it's it's interesting to see how, depending upon which party is in power, they're going to interpret some of the clauses and some of the amendments in the Constitution. The Ninth Amendment is certainly not insignificant. At times, it can be perceived as unclear, but it remains a deliberate addition by the founders to ensure the Bill of Rights would not be the end-all, be-all of rights guaranteed to American citizens. Crucially, it also paves the way for the Tenth Amendment. The power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. Tenth Amendment. How are we to understand the Tenth Amendment? How are we to understand the balance between the state's rights and federalism? When does it become necessary and proper for the federal government to intervene? We turn to Professor Mitt Regan. Um, the Tenth Amendment is there because there was concern at the Constitutional Convention on the part of several states that the federal government would become too powerful and that state governments correspondently would become less and less significant. And so it's meant really to express the fundamental principle of federalism, the fact that we have dual systems of authority. We have the, the federal level and we have the state level. So the 10th Amendment says there are certain things, certain powers that are allocated to the national government uh, in the Constitution itself explicitly. But to the extent that they're not, those are reserved to the states. Right? In other words, Constitution says this is what the federal government can do. Anything left over, anything not mentioned there is left to the states, and that's meant to express the principle of federalism. Over time, right, as we become, to some extent, more of a national government and activity crosses boundaries, Congress has been able to rely on its power to regulate interstate commerce to regulate activities, uh, even those activities that, are, that occur solely within an individual state, uh, because of the effect that those activities will, you know, would have on interstate commerce. If a business in a particular state sells goods or services outside that state, then that affects interstate commerce. And in addition, the Constitution uh, provides that those powers that are necessary and proper for Congress to carry out its expressly delegated powers also may be exercised by Congress. So even though something may not be specifically mentioned, Congress can engage in regulation if it's necessary to carry out, let's say, a power to uh, regulate interstate commerce. 
So that has expanded the scope of what Congress can do beyond what might be seen as specific explicit powers in the Constitution. It relies on explicit powers that are more open-ended. In recent years, the court has become a little more sensitive to state concerns and has cut back to some extent on Congress's regulatory authority. And, and this is something that will, I think, continue to, to go back and forth. Professor DeCritico, can you offer some historical context on the Tenth Amendment? How are we to understand our history and evolution of the relationship between states' rights and federalism? How does the Civil War and the Civil War amendments inform this process? Basically, what I think you're getting at is what is the nature of the union? Is this a compact of states? I mean, that's the argument that, that Jefferson will make. The states ratify the Constitution. That's the argument he makes in the Kentucky Resolution. We ratified the Constitution, so if we don't like something about it, we reserve our right to pull out. So what is the nature of the Union? And this is at the heart, well, one of the pieces, at the heart of the Civil War. What will it decide? Is the, is the future of the country going to be slave and free or no slaves? And what is the nature of this Union? Is it a compact? Or is it indissoluble? And that's what Lincoln is going to say. This is a union. And as a result of the Northern victory, one of the prerequisites of Reconstruction is that the Southern states must ratify the 13th Amendment and they must repudiate secession. The other piece is that a lot of the Southern states refused to admit they were wrong. So instead of repudiating secession, they repeal it. And that's going to lead to Johnson, Andrew Johnson, who succeeds Lincoln after Lincoln's assassination, appearing to Congress in 1865 and saying, war's over, reconstruction's over, everything's fine. And Republicans, particularly radicals, are going to look around in the Congress and see that what the former states, the Confederacy, have done is reelected pre-war political leaders. So believe it or not, in the House of Representatives, the ex-vice president of the Confederate States, Alexander Stevens, has a seat. And with the 13th Amendment, as I mentioned, they picked up 12 more seats in the House, which leads the radicals to say, uh, who won? You're not repudiating secession, you're repealing it. You're reelecting known traitors. Uh, no, go back and do it again. And to make sure that you do it right, we're dividing the South in five military districts and we're putting a major general in charge of each district and we're sending Union troops to occupy you until you get it right. We now turn to Professor Brielle Harbin. We know the ratification process was long and arduous. The Constitution was written in 1787, but not ratified until 1791. What was the largest barrier to ratification? Specifically, what was the impact of states' rights versus federalism? When we're thinking about states versus the central government, this is still something that we hear echoed in political debates today when you hear people talking about 
um, federalism, when you have people talking about uh, in the context of the pandemic, uh, whether or not the federal government should be able to create a policy that says everybody should have to wear a mask, or if that should be something that's left to the states. That's essentially a question that echoes the uh, concerns of the, the thoughts or the ideas of federalists and anti-federalists. And then also the question of whether or not there should be uh, small government or bigger governments. That maps onto thinking about Republicans and Democrats and how they just have very fundamentally different visions on governance. And, you know, there are arguments that can be made, smart arguments on both sides, but at the end of the day, they're just at their core disagreements about the role of government, the vision of government, the implementation of government. Um, and those can be traced back to these initial conversations that we see at the Constitutional Convention. Now, the other thing, the second barrier that I think is really um, something that's operating at the background is just that we know that we, the country, is considering these issues of representation, um, of liberty, but in the background, we have slavery. In the background, we have indigenous people whose you know, land has been taken. And so it's a fundamental contradiction in American political development that people who are so afraid of, you know, the rule, you know, King George and having their freedoms encroached on, were making all these decisions and having these conversations about the way forward while really kicking the can down the road on this question of slavery. And so, you know, we see the compromise made with the, you know, in the revolutionary moment that we don't include the passage on slavery that Jefferson crafted. So we're kicking it down the, uh, kicking the can down the road again. So now we're coming back to the question in the context of the, uh, of the constitution. And we see that slavery doesn't actually appear uh, in the constitution. We see slaves being described as other persons. And we're seeing that slavery can't be outlawed by Congress until 1808. We're seeing that slaves have to be returned, even though there's this contradiction of we want to have state power, uh, state centered power and states to have autonomy. We're saying that, well, even if a, a slave gets to a free state by the conversations and uh, decisions that we're making at the Constitution, that slave has to be returned no matter where they are. So in complete ways, there was this sidestepping of this question that has to be resolved if you are really going to be true to the definition of liberty, of freedom. And that's why we, you know, fast forward 80, you know, 80 years, get to the Civil War, which becomes, you know, a fundamental divide, you know, literally the union breaking apart and get to having to return to the question because there were these compromises that were made, but they were incomplete. Getting to the civil rights movement and thinking about giving African-Americans and women and giving them additional rights it's still work that's incomplete. Um, and so the same barriers or the same challenges that the people at the Constitution were, Constitutional Convention were facing are ones that we're still grappling with today. And the work is still incomplete. At this moment, we have a responsibility to be frank. Upon ratification, the Bill of Rights was explicit in its rights offered to citizens and clear about actions the federal government was prevented from taking against Americans. The key word is citizens. Who was a citizen of this country? 
and how did we treat non-citizens, or even worse, property? As Professor Harbin alluded to, fundamental contradictions existed when the Constitution became the law of the land. It is no secret slavery prospered for decades to come. The letter of the law did not match the reality of our society. Specifically, the Tenth Amendment allows states to deny rights to citizens and propagate the sinister institution of slavery. The Bill of Rights, much like our Declaration of Independence, represents the ideals of this country. State laws allowed our failures to continue. The push-and-pull nature of federalism and states' rights culminated in a catastrophic civil war. Slave states and free states each had their own set of laws, with a bloody resolution found only on the dark fields of battle, brother against brother, family against family. Our country had to answer a seminal question. Would the rights guaranteed in our Constitution be guaranteed to all peoples of this country, or only some? The music you just heard is from the award-winning 1989 film, Glory. It tells the true story of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, one of only two all-African-American regiments in the Civil War. The 54th Massachusetts earned acclaim for its success across five separate battles from 1863 to 1865. During that time, people of color were not recognized as citizens by Southern states, subsequently being denied the rights we have spent this series detailing. We'll return to the role of the military later in this episode, but upon the Union's victory, it was evident changes to the Constitution were necessary. The 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868. Professor DeCritico, we turn to you. 14th Amendment was passed because the radicals gained control. The 14th Amendment was originally the 1866 Civil Rights Bill, which Johnson vetoed, and Congress passed over his veto. It basically says it establishes citizenship for former slaves. If you were born or naturalized, you are a citizen. It establishes due process. It makes the freedmen citizens of the United States. Um, It explicitly states that if you are involved in rebellion against the United States, your representation in Congress will be reduced. Anybody participates in insurrection, you are not allowed to hold office. And this is basically to get at what they feel are illegitimate reconstruction governments in the South. Interestingly, if more legislation has been litigated on the 14th Amendment than any other amendment to the Constitution, and it's because of how do we define due process. And it's sort of ironic because the whole point of the 14th Amendment was to make the freedmen citizens of the United States so that we couldn't have groups like the Ku Klux Klan that emerged in 1867 uh, targeting the freedmen who who were under radical reconstruction were allowed to vote 
three years ahead of the 15th Amendment, which gave the freedmen the right to vote. So in many respects, the, the 14th Amendment and the policies that it establishes under military rule uh, is designed to give the freedmen rights that had been taken away by these paramilitary groups like the Klan. We return to Professor Regan and Professor Luban. What impact did the 14th Amendment have on the country, the law, and the Bill of Rights specifically? The most significant thing that the 14th Amendment has done with respect to the Bill of Rights is apply virtually all the Bill of Rights to the states. The 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War, when the idea was then, all right, we the war has established, we are a single country, we're not simply a collection of uh, different state governments, and therefore there ought to be some standards that are uniform throughout the country. And therefore, the 14th Amendment with you know, respect to the state's requirements to comply with due process in particular, means that the states are subject to virtually all the kinds of obligations that are set forth in the Bill of Rights, right? So that just as an individual has rights against the federal government as set forth in the Bill of Rights, against the federal government, so an individual has rights against state government that are comparable to the ones he or she has against the federal government. Very few exceptions. All the Bill of Rights have been incorporated as constraints against state governments by virtue of the 14th Amendment. So to take the First Amendment, Congress shall pass no law abridging freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion. What if the states do it, not Congress? What the, one of the things that the 14th Amendment does is to, uh, um, is to say that uh, some of these basic rights, uh, the right to not have your life, liberty, or property taken away without due process of law, that the states can't do that either. The, the second thing that the 14th Amendment does is to say that everybody gets equal protection of the laws. And it's the great charter of equality in the Constitution. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of question about whether the Supreme Court during the Reconstruction era really just kind of narrowed it and chipped it away. Because you might think that if you were really going to just read the words at what they say, everybody gets equal protection of the law. It means that the state is stepping in to protect the freed slaves who were, you know, this is uh, one of the one of the post Civil War amendments um, to to bring African Americans into the polity. Um, you might think, well, that means the state has to protect them. Well, during Reconstruction, when the Supreme Court starts backpedaling away from Reconstruction, they say no, it only protects um, against state actions, not private discrimination. And it had to wait almost another century till the Civil Rights Act before uh, um, private discrimination was uh, was made illegal. The Fourteenth Amendment says that um, states can't take away the privileges or immunities of citizens, but that, in a series of Reconstruction era Supreme Court cases, uh, 
the course that that's only talking about the privileges and immunities under federal law, not under state law. So the court really did a number on trying to take away some of the boldest egalitarian parts of the 14th Amendment. But one of the most important parts is just that uh, uh, due process gets applied against the state states as well. So if you look at due process, it says you can't have your life, liberty, or property taken away without due process of law and focus in on liberty. Well, the liberties might be those other amendments in the Bill of Rights. And so little by little, the rest of the Bill of Rights becomes incorporated against the states and not just against Congress. The 14th Amendment is highly lauded, guaranteeing citizenship, preventing state abuses, and an adherence to due process deserve lauding. Specifically, the 14th Amendment had the distinct impact of guaranteeing in the eyes of the law all citizens would be guaranteed equal protection and the rights guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. Its impact on the written law cannot be overstated. Professor DeCritico, can you discuss both its limitations and its impact in the political sphere? I hate to say it, there was nothing idealistic about this. The Republican Party was determined to have deep roots in the South, and they thought the only way they could do that was by enfranchising the freedmen. And that's why you have the 15th Amendment, because it was so overly dependent upon the Black vote. Ultimately, the Republican Party is not going to put down any roots in the South until my midshipmen are always asking me, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, when did this change come? And I, and I say, you can date it, 1936. And they look at me, I said, the New Deal. The New Deal was also, certain programs were called the Negro Runaround, but New Deal programs were colorblind. So even though Blacks didn't get a lot, they got something. So that in the election of 1936, you have this tsunami where Southern whites wake up and suddenly... They're the minority wing of the majority party. And guess what? They've got blacks who are now voting Democrat. They've got people in the North. They've got naturalized immigrants voting Democrat, and they are very uncomfortable. And that's the origin of Southern Republicanism. And you see that begin of 1948 because Harry Truman has a civil rights plank. And so led by Fielding Wright of Mississippi and Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, the Deep South walks out and calls themselves the state's rights party. It's shades of 1860 all over again. And they become affectionately known as the Dixiecrats. And what they're hoping to do is split the election to have it thrown in the House where, because of seniority, they tend to control the seats. But Truman shocks them all by defeating George Dewey. But that really is the origin of, of Southern Republicanism. Because I tell my, my mids, when I was in grad school in uh, Tennessee, the headline in the Nashville, Tennessee would be, Alabama elects its first Republican since Reconstruction, as if you know the world's going to come to an end because suddenly we have Republicans in the South, the so-called solid South. The 14th Amendment played a critical role in the nation's fight for civil rights, but we would be remiss and mistaken to describe it as a panacea or a cure. The 14th Amendment did not ensure equality for all, even if it had played a crucial role in the advancement of this great American experiment. The advancements of civil rights in this country, namely ensuring the Bill of Rights applies to all citizens, remains consistent with the theme of this episode. 
Too often, the letter of the law does not match the reality of society. Do you think a black man that was lynched in Alabama in the 1900s was given fair treatment and due process? Did his murderers face criminal charges and their own due process? Did the peaceful protesters in Selma, Alabama, have their right to free speech and assembly respected? Did their abusers face their own day in court? As we heard at the very beginning of this episode, the reality of this country is such. We as American citizens have pledged our faith and allegiance to a concept and a set of principles. These ideals are articulated in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights we have so closely examined. Yet it is our responsibility, as both citizens and officers, to adhere to the ideals and to ensure the letter of the law applies equally to all. The United States is not a perfect country. As James Madison noted in Federalist 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. We as a nation have made mistakes and committed impermissible sins, but we remain the great American experiment, and our progress and growth as a country should be an inspiration to all of us. One does not lack patriotism for criticizing their country. On the contrary, the most patriotic thing one can do for their country is to recognize wrongs and mistakes and to correct them. The greatest form of love for this country is to improve it and make it better for each and every citizen. You'll notice this episode has largely omitted discussion about the military. In terms of the 9th, 10th, and 14th Amendment, there exists only a minimal impact on the UCMJ. But let us use this segue to highlight the advances on civil rights by the military throughout our nation's history. While the letter of the law has not matched the realities of society, the military has been bold and forward-thinking. This is not to say the military has been perfect by any stretch, but it has regularly given opportunities to groups of people who lacked opportunities in society writ large. From the all-black 54th Massachusetts in the Civil War, to the 350,000 black Americans in World War I, to the 1 million black Americans in World War II, to the 11,000 women stationed in Vietnam, the military has been an example of progress. Mind you, the black soldiers in World War I and World War II still had to use separate water fountains and sit in the back of the bus in the United States, but they fought and died nonetheless. They believed in and loved this country that much. Specific minority groups have etched themselves into American military lore. The 54th Massachusetts, the Harlem Hellfighters, the Buffalo Soldiers, the Woman's Air Force Service Pilots, the Wasps, the 442nd Infantry Regiment of Japanese Americans fighting in Italy, the Tuskegee Airmen, the Wind Talkers, otherwise known as the Navajo Code Talkers in the Pacific during World War II, and so many more. As we conclude this episode, we reflect and ponder. Professor Regan, considering the 14th Amendment, what would the Founding Fathers, and specifically James Madison, think? If you were alive in 1867, I think you would approve of the 14th Amendment. I think that, as you say, Madison had a complicated history where he's perceived as being a Federalist in favor of strong government at one point in his career, and then a so-called anti-Federalist at another, jealous of state power. But I think ultimately, Madison believed in the United States as a nation. 
He wrote many, many of the Federalist Papers trying to persuade, trying to reassure people that we could come together as a single nation, you know, even while respecting uh, the individual states that comprise it. And I think he would, if he were writing in 1867, he would see the war as having basically established that. And I think he would see the 14th Amendment as a way of unifying the country and, and bringing it together while still providing you know, sufficient opportunity for state government to operate. Madison wanted to establish a national government. At the same time, he was quite mindful of how government could overreach. So he wanted to ensure that individuals had protections against that overreach. The Bill of Rights was a way to do that. And therefore, I think that beginning the process of extending the Bill of Rights to the states via the 14th Amendment is a process that would be consistent with Madison's notion of a national government, but a government limited in powers, and a state government the same. Professor Harbin, what has changed between 1791 and today? How has the understanding of the Bill of Rights changed? What would the founders find surprising? I think race has always been the entry point for thinking about all dimensions of difference. So whether or not we're talking about gender or sexuality or ability, race, because it was one of the first uh, divides, that provides us an entry point. So why are we talking about the 9th, 10th, and the 14th Amendment all in one episode? In summary, it's because of this. The founders sought in the Ninth and Tenth Amendment to limit the powers of the federal government. The citizens have rights, and those rights that have not been specifically reserved to the federal government belong to the states and the people. But it was the Fourteenth Amendment, right after the Civil War, that was focusing on the emancipation and the franchise offered to former slaves, that in fact brought the state's powers into check. Due process and equal protection is available to all citizens, no matter what race, what creed, what religion. The Ninth, the Tenth, and the Fourteenth in so many different ways affect states' rights and federalism. So the U.S. Constitution, that thing you swore special faith and allegiance to on I-Day, has a significant impact on you as a citizen, and as an officer. Thanks for joining us as we looked at the U.S. Constitution, as modified by the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment. We're not done. Join us next time as we talk about the Second Amendment and the Third Amendment, and how perceptions of the tyranny of the British Crown formed those two amendments. Thanks for listening to the Bill of Rights podcast from the Stockdale Center at the United States Naval Academy. This is a series of presentations that covers the interconnections between the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and how the Uniform Code of Military Justice relates to each other. Tune in for the rest of the series covering freedoms, criminal procedure, courts, trials, and enumerated rights, among other things. You raised your hand in an oath to the Constitution the first day you got here. 
make sure you know what it means. These podcasts are brought to you by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. I'm Michael Sears, the Director of Leadership Innovation, and I'm with my partner, Ensign Aiden Riley. We wrote, edited, and produced this series. Would also like to thank our guests, Professor Doug Rao as James Madison, Professor Mark Nevitt, Professor Jeff McCreese, Professor Mary DeCritico, Professor Brielle Harbin, Professor David Luban, Professor Mitt Regan, Professor Jeff Kossif, Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik, and Colonel Christopher Shaw, United States Marine Corps. Music by America the Beautiful by Ray Charles. The film Glory soundtrack, orchestrated by James Horner. The U.S. Army Fife and Drum Corps. Words by James Madison and the 55 founding fathers who started this conversation. And we are happy they did. <laughs>